People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. And it's a great joy to interview a colleague, actually, on Fine Music Radio, someone you'll know quite well, Amanda Boerter, who is a writer and journalist who resides in Cape Town. As an art journalist, she's written mostly on performing and creative arts and published articles both in newsprint and magazines nationally and internationally. And Amanda's quite famous for her first exclusive story, an interview with the famous cabaret artist Marlena Dietrich in Cape Town. We'll get to that in a moment. But Amanda was born in Johannesburg. The family soon moved to Cape Town, where her father was a doctor at what was the Fawkes Hospital, now the Mediclinic. And they lived in a house in the grounds of the hospital. And she and her younger sister attended Jan van Riebeck Primary and High Schools. On leaving school, Amanda enrolled at Stellenbosch University, where she obtained her B.A. Honours Degree in History, Psychology, and Afrikaans Literature. But she was always interested in writing and had, during her varsity years, written some articles for the Burgers. So when she graduated, she was immediately employed by the paper as a journalist. But that was just the start. There's so much. Amanda, welcome, first of all. Thank you. Thank you it's for good. having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. As I said at the beginning, people know you as the presenter of Book Cursor once a month here on Fine Music Radio. And just reading through your life story, Amanda, and all the people you've met and the things you've done, we could be here for a very long time, but let's try and get the major parts. But what I'm most interested in is when you were young, it seems as though your parents played a fairly major role because it seemed perfectly natural for them to take you to theatres and concerts just as part of family proceedings, so to speak. Yes, I was very pleased, I realized in later years, for that wonderful occasion. It was never presented to us as an educational thing. We just went along and the, we had a standing rule that on a Friday or a Saturday or sometimes both evenings, we would go to whatever is on a theater, opera, a ballet. We had the wonderful Alhambra, which is one of the most beautiful, beautiful and nostalgic places that I have in my memory. I never saw that. Can you believe oh, it, Amanda? It I missed it because they knocked it down, didn't they? Yeah, it's so sad that that went. That was something that should have been kept. It was a house of magic. If you walk in, the stars welcome <laughs> yes, you. Yes, I believe so. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, we had that kind of privilege to go to all these kind of, like the theatres with the labia. The, there was in the labia those days was a fully theatre. for, And then we moved the Hofmeyer Theater was also important, which was now next to the Grote Kerk before the then Nico Malang came. But my period was in the older part of that when we went the City Hall, the Alhambra Theater, and Hofmeyer and Lapia. Those were the stamping grounds. <laughs> but now, so you were very young at the stage, weren't you? Yes. And were you? It was you and your sister, weren't yes. you? You had a sister. Were you quite happy to go along? It didn't yes. intimidate you or you didn't think I should be out with my friends or anything like that? No, we never thought about that was never intimidating. It was always something to look forward to because mm. we also now kind of built up our own kind of people that we thought were we were fans of them and so forth. And remember, we went to theatre, wonderful theatre. We we were taken to theatre, both not only sort of comedies or things like that, but Shakespearean plays. We were also taken to, by the way, in those days was also the beginning of Afrikaans uh, film. And we were taken to all those, uh, Jamie Ace and all those kind. That was a special outing too. But mostly the theatre... And in those days, there were the Eon Group and the Cape Town uh, Ballet, which was under Dulcie House. And they were uh, sort of always available in concert. for. And then there were concerts at the City Hall, both the symphony and other uh, various musical uh, concerts. And we were going to that on a regular basis. You made me laugh before we came to the studio, Amanda, because you said that 
it seemed perfectly normal to you and your family to do this, and yet some other people thought it rather strange that you were going to opera and ballet at such a young age so regularly. Meanwhile, it was just so natural for you and your family to yeah. do this. Well, I am so extremely grateful for that because this is one of the most wonderful gifts, uh, apart from the gift of reading that uh, my parents gave to us, that we had that exposure. And it, now, in later years, I realize how much that helped me in my later career mm -hmm. because it creates also an insight into lives of other people and it gives you an opportunity to in a sense psychologically know people without realizing that you are using psychology per se uh, to understand your circumstances but that world of enrichment and that that wonderful memories that one's got about that. Mm -hmm. So a nostalgia trip for me is quite a lovely one because it goes <laughs> into all of those. Unfortunately, we've got music sometimes to play with it to help me to create again that wonder world. So was it as a result of your parents doing this to you or for you, I should say, that you then developed this interest in the arts uh, and in writing? Because clearly writing is the thread right through your life, apart from it, all the different subjects you wrote upon. Yeah, I remember very clearly that when I was 11 years old, um, I decided, as a child decides at those kind of times, that my career will be writing and in the world of the arts. I didn't know particularly what it would be, but I had exposure then already to the creative arts, as you've just mentioned, and I also had a keen interest in the visual arts. And from a very early time, when I was about 12 years old, I on my own went to the various art galleries in Cape Town and uh, I cannot tell you how much that, that enriched my life. It gave me a wonderful, what other people considered entertainment was my work yes. and my life. <laughs> Indeed and gosh what a wonderful life it gave you Amanda as we'll discover but I'm also keen to know with your love of music what music you've chosen for us and I see your first piece now is the soprano aria from Act Two of La Traviata by Verdi. Is there a special reason you've chosen this? Yes, because that was my first, uh, the first opera that I was introduced in 1956 uh, when we went to the uh, City Hall in Cape Town and that was the debut of the Eon Group's first opera in uh, the City Hall and it was a wonderful, marvelous, magical experience and I actually sort of can replay that <laughs> my first La Traviata over and over again in my mind. In your mind, okay. Yes. And I had the privilege those that evening to listen to May uh, Abrams which was then the soprano. Okay, well we're going to hear Joan Sutherland, how about that? That's even better. Sempre in vita, nel ritorno 
the music of Giuseppe Verdi, a great favorite, that the aria from Act Two of La Traviata, and sung by Joan Saladin, the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, and that's Amanda Burta, who is a colleague of mine here, as you know, one of our book presenters, book curator, but who has had an extraordinary career. We spoke, Amanda, about you studying history, psychology, and Afrikaans literature at Stellenbosch University, but still writing was the main thing, and you got employed quite quickly by Die Burger, didn't you? And that was your first sort of professional opportunity in the world of writing. And was that as a reporter, kind of daily reporter? Yes, yes. I was very fortunate there because the Burger invited me to join their staff before the end of that academic year still. Mm. And uh, I started to work in that August at, you know, before my graduation, which was in December. So I've had a very long span of, of journalism, but this was so wonderful to me. This is what I always wanted to do. Indeed, writing for a living and earning mm. money for what you love doing, like a musician playing an instrument. There you go. And I have to ask you now about one of your first big breakthroughs, famously, where you sidled up to Marlena Dietrich in Stutterford's, which must have been very brave. You were young. You were a young reporter. She was a mega star. Tell us the story. She was at a cosmetic counter. Yes. What she gave was, you the nerve? I don't know, except <laughs> that I was curious. And it was in an open space. She was in public domain. And I went down. I was already up on the escalator to go to what was the bird cage in those days for my lunch. And I immediately came down and I went and stood next to her where she was at the Esti Lauder counter. I remember Esti Lauder only for that particular reason. <laughs> and I stood next to her. I was not intended to ask her anything. I just wanted to see what she was busy doing. And she looked at me and she said later on, what do you do here? And I said, no, I'm here because of you. I'm just looking at what you are doing. You know? really? She said, who are you? And I said, well, I've just started as a reporter at the Burger, and I've only been for three weeks a reporter. Oh, she says. I said, I, I didn't ask for an interview. I still made that clear to her. Mm. And she said, I'll talk to you, kid. You come this afternoon at five o'clock to the Mount Nelson Hotel, and we'll speak. <laughs> so she wasn't rude. She wasn't No, she offhand. was extremely pleasant and nice to me. Mm -hmm. After, by the way, and you can check that with Peter Turin, she had rejected every other single request of, at that time, quite established and famous journalists. My goodness. So you went to the so Mount I was Nelson. A kid. Yes, I went at five o'clock there. I told the news editor, and he said, never mind the interview, just... Do this little story of you standing next to her at the <laughs> counter because I don't know whether he believed that. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the very first story that I got a byline with, and that was on the front page of the burger at the time. And the afternoon when I got to the Mount Nelson Hotel, I actually believed that she had invited me. So it's not as if I went there and didn't know what I was doing there. Yes, yes. So uh, I was taken to her suite where she was staying and she was standing there and she said what do you want to know of me that was the first question and then I said well I don't really know much about you <laughs> and I said this is my first interview and so on <laughs> and I was just a bit awkward in a kind of way but yes. she was so extremely sweet to me mm. she said I'll tell you and then she started to tell me little stories about her time during the Second World War while she was singing and Lily Marlene and the history of those kind of little things. And then I asked later on, I had a bit of more, well, almost guts, I think, to ask then two or three extra questions. But I wrote it all down without, you know, we didn't have recordings mm. and so on. And I had quite a lot of information that she gave me. And when I left, I said, can I write something about it? She said, of course. And I thought that I must now, you know, I didn't know what to do and where to start with. And I saw her, I've been already into the concert at the old Alhambra where it's an unforgettable scene there. That is where I met Peter Dirk Ace, by the way. He was in the wings there. And I got very well on with her and she said, Kit, you must keep in touch with me, she said. And I never thought Did that. Did she call you Kid? Kit. <laughs> I don't know if she knew my name at first, <laughs> Kit. And did she stay in touch with you? Yes, and I told Peter Turin that she told me this, and he said, you must stay in touch with her. And she said, you must come and visit me. 
said, where do you stay? She said, in Paris. And I did go and see her in her flat in Paris two years before she passed away, and she was very friendly and nice to me. And she remembered you? She remembered me then. I was not, she didn't call me Kit then, but she did call me. That was her (laughs) reference to me. I reminded her that I was the Kit. Do you still have that story written somewhere yes. in your archives? Somewhere? Yeah, I actually didn't have a full account of it. And about two, three years ago, Peter Turk, I used to keep the record of that. Because they're good friends. They were good friends, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. Yes. My goodness, Amanda, that's a lovely, lovely story to tell. But it seems that. But it was an important break. Yes, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. And that was when you were on Die Burger still. Yeah. And it seems to me that you had an ear as a reporter, an intrepid reporter. You had, because I'm going to come to another story which you accidentally overheard somewhere about sextuplets, but we'll get there in a moment after your next piece, which I see is Beethoven, the Moonlight Sonata, the Piano Sonata Number 14. Why have you chosen this? That has always been most beautiful piece. I've, the first time I heard it was when Lionel Bowman played it many years ago. But my unforgettable memory about this is with the opening of the Ode Libertas Amphitheater. That was Askenazi playing that in this open air on a full moon. And it was, you know, I just, that, the magic of that is still with me. Okay, well, let's have Vladimir Ashkenazi with the first movement of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Thank you. 
Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 14, the first movement known famously as the Moonlight Sonata and played by Vladimir Ashkenazi, bringing back wonderful memories of Oda Libertas all those years ago for my guest Amanda Borta on People of Note this week. Amanda, we spoke about your parents taking you to these concerts and things, but it seems to me just reading through your your life's um, CV here that you've been lucky with teachers and people. There have been people who've had huge influences on you and to which I gather you are eternally grateful. Tell me about some of them and how you came across them. I mean, people like Gordon Khrieff, Jean Veltz, Burniev. You know, I've had two particular teachers in my life which had a huge influence on me. The one was called Peter Lotrit in my primary school. And the reason why I owe him a great debt is because he actually believed what I told him when I was 11 years old, that my life will be in writing and in theater, as as I called it at the time. And he actually believed that and encouraged me. And I often thought about it. If I did not have his belief in me at that time, I probably would not have had the courage um, to continue because it was a kind of a strange kind of dream. You know, you become a nurse or you become a teacher, but you don't plan a life like that. So I'm very grateful to him. And at high school, I had Gordon Griff, who was equally inspiring to me and also believed in what I said. And he helped me a great deal, especially to uh, read certain books and to encourage me in various directions. Uh, Jean Veltz was the famous painter, and he had an exhibition at the National Gallery in Cape Town. And I used to go on a Saturday or on a Friday afternoon after school uh, on my own to the various art galleries in Cape Town. And the National Gallery was one of my places where I came quite regularly. And I, I went there sometimes two or three times to look at exhibitions because that was something that I had to teach myself. Yeah. And um, when I got there... Veltz came towards me and he said, you know, I've noticed that you are now here for the third time. What are you doing here? And I was, that, I would, that was my 13th birthday here. And I said, well, I'm coming to look at the paintings and I also want to make a list of the artists that I someday, when I've got the money, want to buy. <laughs> he said to me, no, no, let me teach you how to look at a painting. Really? And he he still strangely asked me, have you got the time? And for the, about the 40 minutes, he took me around and he showed and he pointed to me, told me, what do you look for in a painting, etc. And why is it good? And so on. And when we finished this little, t- he put his hand on his sh- my shoulder and he said to me, forget about making notes about paintings that you want to buy sometime. It, it's not important. If you use what I taught you today, you will have for the whole life, for for your whole life, the greatest gallery of beautiful paintings in your heart and in your mind. My goodness me. I cannot tell you what that did to me. Mm. Uh, From that day onwards, I was never interested again in who was I going to collect when I've got money one day. Mm. I was only interested to look at the paintings in this particular way and to read what I could find. And also the very first time that I could go overseas, I took this opportunity to go to every big art gallery that I sort of read about or heard about. And let me tell you that this is the most, if I have to count and say what I'm worth, well, I've got the biggest art gallery in the world, which I carry with me every day. Oh, gosh. That's a lovely, lovely story, Amanda. Thank you for sharing that. Burnev, on the other hand, was an important influence, too. He was a poet, and we met one another on the bus stop, which is <laughs> in the old Maltino bus, which stopped in front of the Folks Hospital uh, at the time. And he walked down from his house, and we would meet and go on the bus. And uh, we spoke also about art because he told me about his collection of art, which I am to this day very much involved with, which is the Burniev collection at Valgemeend on the grounds of Jan van Riebeek. And I went with him to some of the artists when he went to buy paintings from them. And I only later on, when I was later on, I discovered that he was actually 
a great poet and that he is Burnief and I only knew him as Um Isaac. So <laughs> that's also very special to me. As you say, people have had a huge influence on you and I'm getting the impression that the visual arts is the most important thing. But I know music and opera, we'll get to that in a moment, are also very important to you. But it sounds as though visual arts is very special. Visual arts become very special to me because of that line that I can mm. carry my gallery yes, with uh, me. With you, yeah. And also over the years, I got to know a, a number of artists and had close dealings with often younger artists who and so forth and that was very important to me that special connection between myself and artists and the fact that they trusted me enough to talk to me about their work yeah absolutely that's very important and you don't paint or play, play an no. instrument to you are a you're a writer you write about these things i receive what other people tell me yes <laughs> okay that's one way of looking at it there's the other thing that you've written so many books uh, on varying subjects and I'm right in saying you were for a while a sports journalist up in Johannesburg. Yes, I was. I was actually the first female woman sports writer in South <laughs> Africa. <laughs> yeah, really. And uh, that offered me also wonderful opportunities uh, because I was uh, then uh, there to report on really our great uh, sports stars, superstars. Mm. And they were all teenager girls at the time. And they held between the six of them that I had to report on. 11 world records and you know and that was also the time just before the sport boycott and you know that was a wonderful time that two years that I did that was lovely I traveled with them abroad and it, it was in every aspect something wonderful and one of the wonderful people that I dealt with there was Deirdre Barnett who was the world exactly 50 years ago this year she held various world records in water skiing and she came back from the world water ski championships in australia and i went to the airport as it was those days to meet the returning stars and to take a photograph or a little piece in the burger the next day and uh, there i met her father dr chris barnard who was then shall i say a non-entity <laughs> <You could>. um, <laughs> Uh, no, in not in relatively in speaking. Re yes, relatively yes. speaking, and I asked him to pose with Deirdre uh, with a photograph because he actually was her trainer. And the next day, when the picture came in the newspaper, he phoned me immediately and he said he is so excited because that was really one of the first mm. <laughs> <laughs> photographs taken of him. And he told me that well, he will phone me sometime. And then I get this phone call. I must leave everything and I must come immediately to the Grotesky Hospital. So I'm going to ask you to stop there because we know what happened after that. Or oh, maybe we don't. But I'm going to ask you that extraordinary story after your next choice, Amanda. Pumetza Matikiza, our star soprano. Now, why have you chosen her apart from her beautiful voice? Well, I got to know her here in Cape Town. And I got so much admiration for her from where she comes from, her background, what she did, how she sort of persevered. She didn't have the most wonderful and easy circumstances in mm. which she had to work. Mm. And the fact that she could make a career and a wonderful career in Germany now. And I, what I appreciate of her is her loyalty as a friend. We still keep contact. She comes here on a regular basis. And she is always willing to give back. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate her for that. And I had the first song that she, when I said, you know, sing something. And she sang the first few bars of La Paloma.
Paloma, and that was the voice of the South African soprano Pumetsa Matsikiza, who's having such a career internationally, and you can hear why with that voice. Another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Amanda Borta, and her extraordinary life and coincidences as well, like that business of you standing in Stutterfords and seeing Marlene Dietrich next to you. But also, as you were saying before the music, you met Deirdre Barnard, a water skier, back as a sort of hero in South Africa with her father, Chris Barnard, and he said to you, I'm going to phone you later in the year, and what you're ever doing, drop and come to me. And that happened, didn't it? Yes. It turned out to be the great heart transplant. That was so, the world's first heart So tell heart me how, what, tell me the sequence of events. It was on a Saturday and I just got a phone call to say that I must come to the hospital and I was told that I must go to a particular door where Dr. Hanarif Saunders let me in. She was then the superintendent and also the boss of Chris Barnett. And I was not present at the heart transplant itself but in that proximity to be able to see you know what was going on and to hear and there was no nothing was arranged there was no press conferences nothing nobody took any notice it was only towards the next day that they decided to give a press conference and tell what had happened and I was then in such a fortunate position that I immediately became a freelance journalist (laughs) as I was then here And that was before cell phones and before all the other things. Mm. And within one week, I represented a number of the international magazines like Barry Match and The Stern. And I've also done pieces for various newspapers that I could have forwarded and photographs and etc. And my lovely story about uh, the exchange of my photograph of Chris Barnett and Deirdre was that in that one week, I earned enough money to A, pay all my study debt and be buy a new car cash. <laughs> Good for you. But you were, although you weren't in the actual operating theater, you were in an observation yeah, area, yes. weren't you? So you were observing the actual heart transplant. Yes. I was, it's difficult for me to say observe because in that sense, you know, I wasn't close to it where I was. Mm-mm. I could see action. Yes. But I only realized what it all was when afterwards it was spoken about. Okay. So I was just sort of present in time, I would mm-hmm. put it. 
So when the story broke the next day, it turned into a massive international story on that Sunday morning. No, on the Monday morning. Oh, was it the Monday morning? Yeah. Oh, okay. Were you the first one to write about it locally? No, I then immediately started what I then did because I realized what was happening only the next day or when, because mm. I went na back the next morning because they were going to see whether he will be alive. Yeah, so, yeah. And um, then I realized what it was and I collected photographs of the various people, you know, Denise, uh, the, the, the donor and the recipient and their family stories. And I took it to international news agencies where I sold the photographs. And mm -hmm. that is the way how they got my name from international to continue to do that. Work. And you got your car. And I got <laughs> my <cash>. car. <laughs> but the other medical story, Amanda, interestingly, is, and w what amused me is the way you came across it, was the Rosenkowitz sex tablets. Because didn't you say, or I read somewhere, you were somewhere and you just overheard someone say. Yes, I was in the Cape Town Magistrate Court for something different. Well, I wasn't there for this particular case, but I heard somebody said he couldn't pay the, you know, it was about an unpaid um, account. And I heard he said he couldn't pay the account because they were so busy, etc., because his wife was expecting sex tulips. And I thought, oh, this. And I saw the, uh, I saw the magistrate looking in a kind of funny way, and I realised that now I must go after this person. Mm. And it was Colin Rosenkowicz. And I saw him outside. I said, "What's going on? What is the story about that?" And he told me. And I went that afternoon uh, to his home in Seapoint, where we spoke about it. And I said, "Well, you know, my newspaper group that I represented at that time." If it is so, and it's going to happen, can we get the world rights? Wow. And that is how... A brave Amanda yeah. in those days. So I, the world rights were for, <laughs> for 11 years, 10 years actually. And, uh, and for that I had to go every year between, well, normally the 23rd of December till the end of January. Uh, end of December, in that time that everybody else wanted to go away, that was the time that we could photograph the sex tulips uh, at their home, in, which was later in Constantia, and that to be distributed worldwide from Russia to New York to various newspapers and Gosh. magazines and so on. Um, Did you buy yourself another car? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I and kept, uh, I, you know, I, I could say this, that with all people that I've always had dealings with, I fortunately kept a, sort of a good relationship with oh, them. And okay. many years later, in a different world, I met Colin Rosenkovich again, which was a completely different story to the magic years of the sex celebs and their world fame. Okay, but they're still all around, aren't they? Yes. All of them, all six of them. Yes, not together, but they are around. Yeah. <laughs> and just on a, on a darker side slightly, a journalist obviously has to cover all sorts of things. And I think you were involved in two very famous cases, the um, Ronald Cohen's murder of his wife and also what became known as the famous, the infamous Scissors murder. And you were the reporter on both those, weren't you? Yes. Well... In the case of the scissors murder, that took almost two years of my life uh, because that was one of a very sensational mm -hmm. uh, court case of this young Marlene Lindberg uh, and the person that she hired to commit a murder on the wife of her lover. And it was a very sad and tragic situation. She got the death sentence. And uh, my friend Wilfred Cooper, who was an advocate, he then offered to represent Marlene when the case went on appeal to Bloemfontein. And in one way or another, I had a two years engagement with her. And one of it was also that she wrote a diary while she was in court and uh, our newspaper got the rights to uh, publish sort of points out of this diary. And I sat with her uh, to do that particular story. So that was very important to me. And now that I talk about it, I realize that much of that observation that, uh, that has been uh, so crucial when one is a journalist, 
because it's not what you hear, it's what you see, mm. uh, was um, maybe because of all the years that I had the privilege to view, especially theater pieces, dramas, etc. Because mm. that is you know, that intuitive feeling you look and you see because you expect something. Yeah. Gosh, that's very interesting. I mean, and gosh, that was a massive story, but in, as they say. Yeah, that was a massive story. So was also the Cohen murder, which is now also exactly almost 50 years ago. And I saw Ronald Cohen the night at his home in uh, Constantia when, just after the murder. Uh, and then, of course, there's the case. And then so it happened that he was sentenced to prison sentence and then got out after about six years. And I was that Sunday, it was on a Sunday that he was released and I was on newspaper duty and also covered that. So I told him when I saw him there, this is now the third time that the three of that you and me meet, the night at your home in court and now here. And, you know, okay, goodbye, I wish you well. And then many years later, I was asked to work with uh, Sir Lawrence van der Poss. And when I went to the airport to go and meet Sir Lawrence, here is the person who stepped with him from the airport, and that was Good Ronald grief. Cohen. And Ronald Cohen was now with Sir Lawrence van der Poss. Because he was then, it was the opening of what is now known as the Jung Center, which is across the road, Baxter in Rondebosch. And the monies came from Cohen, and Van der Poss came here, amongst others, to open the center. And on an occasion, uh, while we were now together, because now so much has happened, it was not now anymore, oh, Ronald and Amon, it was none of this, it was Mr. Cohen. <laughs> and we sat at a lunch, and I turned to him, and I said, you know, I can't take this, I, you know, I I'm not a good actress, I can't pretend. You and me know one another very well. You remember the three occasions that we've met? Yes, he said. And it was such a relief for him that I actually brought this up and this could clear now the air. clear the air. Yes. And, you know, I'm glad to say that we became quite good friends. And I was always very sort of flattered when he sent me always flowers on the occasion that we've confessed that we knew one another <laughs> <laughs> on three previous not-so-nice occasions. Yeah, of course. You know, this is just one of the stories, Amanda, that you told me that's so fascinating and that um, has enriched your life so much and has enriched the lives of those for whom you write and who read you and who whose crits you do. And, I mean, we haven't even covered all the books you've written because you've written a number of books on politics, sport, all sorts of things, haven't you? Yes. Uh, but not novels necessary. No, I, mine is the non-fiction. Non-fiction, right. And all sorts of other things like the role you played in the Space Theatre years ago, the role you played when you came to KPAB, where you worked with Murray Dickey. I think those were the days of the first Wagner productions yeah, here. Strauss and Wagner Richard Strauss and Wagner. And did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy that period? That was a wonderful period. I, I think that I was here when I worked with KPAB in what I call the three golden eras, the golden era of Afrikaans theater with, under Peter Fury and uh, of opera under Marie Dickey and uh, the ballet under uh, David Poo. Gosh, that was it, and yeah. it was a sort of heyday, wasn't heyday. it? In many, many ways. The great days of the, great days. Of the performing arts. But in closing now, and I see you talk of Sheila Cousins, you're writing a biography, you've written a biography of Sheila yeah. Cousins. Yeah, that is, she's a internationally known poet, South African poet, and uh, she is also a painter in her own right. And I knew her well over a period of 25 years. And she's one of the people that I plan to write a biography <laughs> on in the okay. next year. So, Amanda, no retiring for you? No, I wouldn't know what to do. Yes. <laughs> I know what you mean. It's a bug, isn't it? Radio, journalism, the arts. It's a bug that gets into you, doesn't it? You know, I can't play preach, and unfortunately, I don't know how these games work. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, scrambles and so on. Yes, so I am writing. No, yeah. Okay, Amanda, we're going to have to end, but thanks for sharing some lovely stories with us about what's such a rich career that you've had. Uh, here in Cape Town and elsewhere. And you've chosen, well, the Ode to Joy, 
the theme from the last movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Is there a specific reason apart from the extraordinary impact of this music? Well, the impact of the music, of course, but that I often think is a way in which I can celebrate my own life. The Ode to Joy. Well, we just, it's obviously the whole movement, but we're going to just play the main theme as we end our chat to Amanda Borta, who, as I said, writer, journalist, and I don't know what else to call you, Amanda, but thank you. It's been great having you here. Well, there's always that uh, one could call it a jack of all trades. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but don't add the other bit that people say master of none, because clearly you are a master of all the trades that you've tackled. I should say a Jacqueline of all trades. Jacqueline of all trades. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda Borza. That's a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.